Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. to another episode of Lady of the Road. My name is Arda Marine coming to you from my bougie garage in Los Angeles, California. You may know me from Insatiable on Netflix or I don't know, Shameless or Chelsea Lately. With me is my very good friend, Mez. Julianne Robinson. And what do people know you from, Julianne? I directed Bridgerton. I mean, there you go. That's how you do it. That is how you do it. <laughs> Julianne, I know that you and I are both so excited about yes. our next guest. Absolutely, we are. Just to catch our listeners up, if you didn't hear our podcast with the wonderful Kate Walsh from Private Practice and Grey's Anatomy, first of all, you should definitely listen to that. But in it, we brought up something that we feel very passionately about and that is personal to us and I think is being of service to a lot of women out there and something that's not always talked about, but that how women have 
oftentimes historically been ignored when they've tried to get medical attention. If they feel like something's wrong with their body, Kate had an experience where she wasn't feeling well and she went to go to seek help about it. And they just kept treating her as though she was going through menopause, which as she explained in it, she'd already been through early menopause. They gave her Zoloft and she's like, I don't want this is, I mean, maybe I need that for something else. But like, I don't think this is not, they just, she kept being dismissed as an actress who was just insecure. And she really, really had to fight and advocate for herself. And it turned out that in the end, she had an enormous brain tumor, which they then, you know, promptly had to remove. And our wonderful Julianne here had a situation with a pilot directing a few years ago. You sought attention. You didn't feel well. Something fell off and you were handed the same thing. Yeah. Heavy tranquilizers and being told it was stress related. And then it turned out it wasn't stress related at all. (laughs) It's a long story and everything's fine now. But I was amazed at how Often this happens. Yeah. And then the more digging you do, the more you realize what we were looking at. So I was listening to an audio book by Stephanie Winston Walcott, and she was talking about it. I mean, the, the list goes on and on of people who are told they have, I think primarily it's stress related, like you can't handle the stress of the situation you're in. So we need to give you tranquilizers. And that was, it was so interesting talking to Kate because it just seemed so familiar. And that's why we wanted to talk to you, doctor, because you are the expert in this area. With us today, we are so excited. And it also turns out that she has a book that all of you listeners are going to be able to get. Her name is Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn, and she is Zooming with us all the way from England. And she has a background in feminist visual culture and history. Her critical writing has been published in several academic journals, including Screen. She's been a regular contributor to the education program at the Tate Modern and ICA London. And her nonfiction debut, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis, and myth in a man-made world is going to be published worldwide. And in it, she talks about her own experience with being, you know, feeling not well, being told either that something was mentally wrong with her or that was maybe a pregnancy, things like that. And it turned out that she had something quite wrong with her and it took a long time for her to advocate. So she did this research and she wrote a book about it. Welcome to the podcast, Eleanor Cleghorn. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, I can't wait to read your book. I know Julianne and I were so curious about this. And you talk quite a bit in your book about this has been going on for centuries. I mean, could you talk a little bit about the history of this up top? Yeah, of course. Um, So in the press over the last few years, especially I think post Me Too, we've been hearing a lot of stories about how women's experiences across all sectors of society are being invalidated, dismissed, distrusted, ignored and vilified. And I think that as part of this wake of kind of really like cultural kind of attention towards the importance of women's stories, that women's experiences with the medical establishment are really coming to the fore. So in the press in the US and the press over here in the UK, we get loads of headlines that say things like doctors invalidate women's pain. We hear about how conditions like heart disease are often dismissed in women, or quite often fatally. And so there's been a, I feel like there's been a real groundswell recently of realization that 
the medical establishment is failing women. And one of the primary ways it does this is by not listening to women when they report their pain and other symptoms when they first show up at the doctor's office. So when I was first began researching, I thought, okay, so where does all this come from? Like, what are the origins of the situation we find ourselves in now? And I began by researching the condition I have, which is called lupus. And I went back and back and kept kind of unraveling more and more stories about unwell women, which is kind of Matroska dolls, and to get back to the sort of beginnings of medical knowledge in ancient Greece. And from there, I wanted to tell this story that kind of moved us up to the present so we could really figure out how these kind of attitudes towards women's pain, these ideas about women's bodies, and these ideas about how women's emotions, like you were saying about symptoms getting dismissed as stress, how these ideas about women's emotions <clears throat> have been ingrained over those centuries. So as for the history, the book is about Western medicine, which is the kind of medical system that in the UK and the US we will encounter if we go to the emergency room or to a &E. And so beginning in ancient Greece, we have women being treated as essentially kind of wombs on legs. And from there, what we can see is that the way that medical knowledge began about women is in terms of women's social status. So women's purpose then was to bear children, to be pregnant, to bear children. And so understanding of their diseases focuses on their reproductive organs, primarily on the womb. So from those found really foundational ideas, from the thinking of medical authorities like Hippocrates, who was a figure who's known as kind of the father of Western medicine. From there, we get all these treaties about women's bodies that build up over the centuries and then get sort of twisted in terms of what the historical position and social position of women is. So from ancient Greek, we move into the medieval period, which of course saw many women burned as witches, many of whom were unwell as I explore in the book. So then we begin to see how women's bodies are seen as distrustful, as devious, as potentially corruptible, based on the idea that their wombs are kind of out of control. And so then we move into getting towards more enlightened centuries, like the 18th century, with a big focus on emotion. And all these ideas about women's erratic bodies and wild wombs are still very much in play even as medicine starts to become more of a science and less of a mythology. So then you have new ideas about the nervous system still intertwined with these ideas about women's mad, bad and sad bodies. When we get into the 19th century with the professionalizations of disciplines like gynecology and doctors are beginning to be able to look inside women's bodies and see with instruments like the speculum what's actually going on. But yet all these mythologies about how women are how women influence their own pain and other symptoms are still in play. So it's as if you've got this new objective knowledge sort of imprinted on the top of old mythology. And then we move through the 19th century and we get into the age of objective and evidence-based medicine where we are now. And even when we can see x-rays or other forms of sort of diagnostic imaging and knowledge about chronic diseases is coming forth, knowledge about antibodies is breaking through. Still, these pernicious ideas about who women are, how they express themselves, how they can't handle emotions and stress are still clinging on. And they're still influencing how we come to interpret our understanding of women's illnesses and diseases, which sort of brings us up through the very you know, checkered history of the last hundred or so years 
which has seen in some incredible medical advances for women, things like the contraceptive pill, but also some incredible reckonings with what it has meant to be a woman sort of colliding with these sort of authoritative ideas about gender in our society. When I was directing Bridgerton, we were in Castle Howard and I was talking to some of the room monitors and they were so fascinating. They were talking about Regency, the Regency era, and they were saying, you know, the way that you're portraying the Regency era is it's different to how it actually was for women. And they said, you know, if, if a woman was not perceived to be fulfilling her duty as a child-bearing woman or she was getting too old, they would just be carted off and institutionalized and labeled insane. And then the guy would, you know, get a mistress or... Is that true? Yeah. I mean, the idea that women exist primarily to breed and that therefore all of their illnesses and diseases are centered on whether or not they're pregnant, whether or not they're having babies, is completely true. And what's such a weird paradox about that is, yeah, if women weren't fulfilling their sort of social duty of having babies, then that in itself could be seen as an illness, either a pathology of some kind, either a mental one or a physical one. And certainly, you know, the institutionalisation of women and putting women in asylums often did spring from the idea that women were not fulfilling, not sort of towing the domestic line or kind of filling their ordained potential. And oddly, you know, the, the way that understanding of women's health has really pivoted around this idea of reproduction, social ideas around reprodu reproduction, is absolutely true. But there's a paradox because women could be seen as pregnancy was a cure, but then it was also an illness in many ways. So it's like women couldn't win. You know, their reproductive nature made them sick, but they're not fulfilling that duty always made them, also made them sick. So yeah, women were at risk definitely of having their you know, freedoms taken from them by being pathologized in that way. I was wondering if that was the source of some of this. So many people that I know, the, their symptoms being dismissed as stress-related symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. There's such this hugely long history of, I mean, we've all heard of hysteria, which is like the prime sort of slur that you can throw at a woman who's, woman who's making a fuss, right? So hysteria, the word hysteria comes from the Greek word for womb, for uterus. And in the 19th century, especially, it was really pathologized as an illness that didn't really have any strict definitions, but was more whatever a male doctor wanted it to be when he encountered a woman who was who had symptoms, pain that couldn't be explained through his own knowledge. So, yeah, this idea of hysteria, which wasn't really a strict medical diagnosis at all, but more a kind of insult or a slur or way of sort of characterizing a woman as being overly emotional and therefore sick. We now see that legacy where we might go to see the doctor because of, you know, chronic joint pain and be told, oh, it's probably work stress. You know, there's that historical legacy of hysteria lives on that, where a doctor is basically intonating, well, it's all in your head. I can't help but think of even just in all areas of society, I just keep thinking of Tina Fey's book when she was saying how if a woman is strong or smart or doesn't want to sleep with their colleague back in the day, everyone would be like, oh, she's crazy. It's just the easiest way to label like a strong woman with an opinion. Oh, she's crazy. She's crazy. And 
just hearing you talk, you know, that it almost starts with the body, the terror of the body, the terror, like it's such an easy blanket to sort of keep women down. It's just sort of a catch-all that's dismissive and it's interesting. It is. And when you're right, that if a woman wants to decide for herself what she does with her body and what she wants to do with her body, then labeling her crazy is the ultimate way to, you know, take away her agency and autonomy around her own decisions. And that was definitely something that comes up again and again and again in some of the research I did for the book. As if women wanted dare to sort of deviate from what men wanted them to do or what sort of patriarchal society wanted them to do, then label them crazy, label them the 19th century hysterical, label them in the 18th century neurotic, and put them away until they figured out that being a wife and mother and keeping quiet was better for their health. And this, you see this again and again, like being a mother, being domestic and being maternal is a way for women to stay healthy. And I think it's something that isn't just historical. I think we're kind of fed this insidious message now that, you know, the healthiest women are the ones who are sort of keep quiet and stick to their side of the street in terms of what women are expected to do with their lives and bodies. It's interesting, something that Arne and I are very keen not to do is to come across as kind of anti-guy in some way. So what I'm thinking when I'm listening to this is how interesting it's going to be for my you know, I've got two boys and, and just for them to kind of be aware of this, because it's something that I wasn't aware of until Me very neither. recently. And I think it's just it's so much part of the culture. It's such a knee jerk reaction to female behavior or whatever, that it is a really it's a really interesting thing for us to just go back and look at it and really think hard about it. I know I was thinking what you were saying that I was thinking about how much of my upbringing was trained a certain way that I had it ingrained within me in certain ways I was supposed to be and that I felt like just that I wasn't and but that almost the bias even as a woman like the bias I had against myself in a weird way you know it's untangling it's sort of like waking up from a weird dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I completely agree that, and I said this often that it's not the fault of guys; it's the patriarchy and the the aspects of patriarchy that have allowed these attitudes towards women to be kind of sustained over so long. And I also have two sons who are eleven and thirteen, and similarly, I think well, we they're growing up in such a different world now, where questions of consent, of believing the importance of believing women, of listening to what a woman says first before making judgments about. So listening to who she is rather than what she, making judgments about what she is are so important, and it feels like everything is a teachable moment for boys, but they have also so much of this kind of burden of history to work through. And yet also to Arden's point about internalizing this stuff, I completely agree too. Like when I was younger, you know, situations in my life and situations, I mean, going to the doctor is the one that I talk about when I was kind of in my late teens and twenties and him sort of saying things like, well, you know, you obviously like drinking, so maybe you have a gout, which, by the way, is like a weird old-timey disease you get from eating too much cheese. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you have gout. And me going away and going, well, maybe I do have gout. I do like cheese. And just not questioning it. Because, right, we're told, you know, we're socialized and conditioned 
to not question this kind of authority. And that doesn't need to necessarily come from men, but it's that I think the relationship, women are conditioned not to question somebody in authority, someone who's like representative of this kind of authority where women are subjugated and someone else is in charge of us. This is so interesting. We're going to take a quick break and come right back. I can't wait. I'm just fascinated by this. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. And we're back. Last on the episode with Kate, Anna brought up how it's even harder for people of color, women that are people of color. Anna, do you want to? Yeah. You know, my mom, Iranian-American woman who came here in her early 20s, you know, went to college here, has lived here, has a career as an electrical engineer, very smart woman, very capable woman, knows herself very well and her body very well. And I've kind of learned 
from her a lot about like how to take care of myself. And I remember growing up, you know, she's very white passing, you know, you wouldn't know, oh, you know, where is this woman? No one really questions or asks her where she's from until she starts talking because she has an accent. I remember growing up, she'd always after a doctor's appointment be like, God, these, you know, like this country, like everyone treats me like I'm an idiot because I have an accent. And it's like, yes, I might not speak like you, but I actually like I'm a smart human being. <laughs> you know, I've, yeah, I have like degrees. I've learned a lot. Like I've lived in this country for a while now. So she would always tell me like, If they try and tell you how you feel, you know, like you've basically manifested it in your mind because you're feeling this way or that, always tell the doctor to write down that they were the one that said that. She's always said, hold them accountable, because if anything ever comes up, you could be like, well, this doctor said that. And, you know, most of the time my doctors were men, you know, she's like, if you force them. And that's like also, I think, goes to see like she's actually very smart. She's already figured out how to like game the system of like, okay, fine, I will come back and find you if anything goes wrong because it's going to be in my medical files. So she always said, tell them to write it down that they themselves said that there's nothing wrong with you. So the second they have to be held accountable, maybe they'll start to be like, oh, wait, maybe I we should look further. So then, you know. So I always thought that was good advice. And I tell people that as much as I can for women, because we do, you know, especially as women of color. And I'm very lucky because I'm white passing. But black women have this problem all the time. You were saying the Serena Williams documentary that you saw. Right. So I saw she has a HBO sports documentary being Serena, where she had a very difficult pregnancy, where she also has a condition where she gets blood clots. And then she also it's called like pulmonary emulsion, something. Sorry, I don't know the exact medical term for it, but she couldn't breathe after giving birth and they were just doing tests like we don't know what's going on. And she had to be like, no, I have this like I've had this before, like, please test for this test for my lungs, put ink in it. We need to like see. And they were just like, well, okay, if you say so. And she's like, no, like you have to do this. Like I'm going to die. And everyone around her was like, if she literally didn't step up and be like an advocate for herself, she would have died in that moment. And it helps to, you know, be a woman in a position of power like that. But like, she's Serena Williams. (laughs) She had to be like, listen (laughs) to me, which I thought was very telling of how we just treat women and women of color, no matter who you are. Do you have tips for how women can go armed to the doctor? Like, is there anything you would tell us to go to help be the CEO of their own body, like my mom used to say? (laughs) I think that's great. I think what Anna's mom does is incredible. So you hold them accountable because, you know, if you've got them writing down and attesting to what they've told you, then, you know, hopefully they can't gaslight you into believing that it was down to something you did, um, that you didn't get the right diagnosis or treatment. I think that patient advocacy is so important and there are there are ways we can do it we can do things like something I did was take like a diary just of my symptoms like hurts in my joints or you know something like that like fevers and it's almost sometimes you almost feel like you're building up a case to defend yourself but it does help if you go in kind of armed with that information and knowledge about your body that's really sort of straightforward. There was a really famous study that came out in 2001 called The Girl Who Cried Pain about the gender pain gap, which we read a lot about now. And this was the study that showed um, that women definitely get offered tranquilizers and sedatives when they report pain, whereas men get prescribed pain medication. And in that study, it showed that the way that women report their pain also affects 
how they are treated and then if they're admitted for further diagnostic tests. So women who were overly emotional or perceived rather as being overly emotional or used too much descriptive language or related their pain like back to how it was affecting their lives were much more likely to be dismissed as being um, anxious, depressed, stressed, even hysterical, dare we say it. So there's this idea that you can kind of moderate your behavior in order to get better treatment. And I think, you know, knowledge is power. You can be the CEO of your body with knowledge, absolutely. But I think it has to go two ways. You know, I don't think that women should have to moderate their behavior in any way in order to be treated properly. And a full understanding of the fact that, you know, pain is subjective and women and people who identify as women may well have a much more rela- emotional relationship to it. And that's okay. It's almost as if, you know, we can be armed with knowledge as patients, but we also need med- medical establishment to look past those kind of implicit biases that go, okay, a woman who talks about how pain's affecting her life is nothing but a modern day hysteric. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was absolutely revelatory for me when. I was talking to somebody and saying, oh, well, this happened to me. And then they did more studies and they found out that it was actually this. But when somebody said to me, oh, yes, that happens all the time. Women are dismissed as having stress-related issues all the time. That was hugely impactful. I didn't realize. So I think knowledge really is power in that circumstance. It literally changed my life when I understood the history of that. And also just uh, listening to what you're saying, I, I was thinking about the history of this a little bit in terms of the Stepford Wives and how in the 50s and the 60s, women were put on this kind of tranquilizing medication all the time, weren't they? And I know my grandmother was, I think people would be very judgmental about her. Oh, she's on pills, you know? My grandmother was on pills. (laughs) Yeah, but that was what they did. And electric shock, they gave her electric shock therapy. Yeah, the 50s and 60s, even the Rolling Stones have this song, right, about mother's little helper. And the lyric is something like, you know, she goes to the doctor, but nothing's really wrong. She runs for the shelter of a mother's little helper. And it was these, what they called minor tranquilizers that were prescribed to women, usually housewives, usually like white housewives, the Mm -hmm. the stepford wife type, who would, you know, be trying to fulfill this kind of post-war, like perfect post-war housewife you know, keeping with her, her new appliances and her lovely meals and her PTA meetings, going quietly insane, well, maybe not quietly insane, but getting really mentally unwell, or maybe also being chronically unwell and going to the doctor and asking for help and being just kind of silenced with these very addictive little pills. Or, yeah, I didn't like you said, being admitted for even more barbaric and brutal procedures like electroshock therapy, and in some instances, especially in the States, for partial lobotomies as well, which was absolutely harrowing way of, you know, making women sort of return to some kind of domestic harmony in the uh, 50s and early 60s. So yeah, this idea that, you know, they women need to be kind of tidied up, neatened, silenced, I think is something that's really sort of overridden medical attitudes, rather than looking at the root cause, just kind of smoothing over, which I wonder if why, you know, it's still 
so common that women will be given tranquilizing medication rather than pain relief. Because if you can do the work of silencing, you don't have to listen to women actually talk about her life and her feelings. Preparing to talk to you today, I was just doing a little and there was an article about how men and women do present differently in certain things. My mom kept going to get x-rays. They told her she played tennis elbow and then she was icing her arm and icing her arm and then she died completely out of the blue of a massive heart attack. And they were saying, particularly with heart disease, but with a lot of things that women, our bodies are different and that medical schools mostly just teach from the male perspective. And that if you want, there are courses that talk more about women's health, but that people have to sign up for them as sort of electives and that it that it should all be equal because any doctor's office is going to have both equal men and women. But it seems like it starts in the medical schools, you know, that women are much more likely to be taken seriously if they go to the ER, if there is a female physician that they luck out and get, that they are more likely to survive something that might be a heart attack or something that's coming in that if they get a female doctor, am I accurate in what I'm saying? Is that correct? (laughs) Yeah, no, you have completely right. In the early 90s, there was the introduction of this concept called the Yentl syndrome, named after the Barbara Streisand film where Yentl has to pass disguise herself as a boy so she can go the yeshiva and yam, learn the tamil so those women kubandin healy from the national institutes of health was saying that look in order to survive some health conditions and diseases a woman basically has to be a man because all the diagnostic criteria and treatment guidelines and presentation symptom guidelines are based on the normative standard of a white male body and so for years, it wasn't, there was no acknowledgement at all that women did often present very, very different symptoms in the lead up to something like a cardiac arrest. And there was no acknowledgement of this. And one of the reasons for this use of the white male body as the standard is that women are fluctuating subjects. We do, in many ways, have different physiology. Our hormones fluctuate, which means that we would give different results in clinical trials over the over the duration of our cycles, for example. So it's just easier and less costly to just use men in clinical trials. Plus as well, there was a lot of fear around using women in drug trials and clinical testing because women can potentially get pregnant. So even women who are on really long-term contraception or whose male partners had to have vasectomies were still omitted because the guideline were that any woman with the potential of childbearing might be negatively impacted by the drug and so had to be precluded from the trial. And it wasn't until like 1993 that the National Institutes of Health began to revise these guidelines and recommend for a diversity of gender and also of ethnicity in clinical trials. And that's really recent, really <laughs> recent in the life yeah. of medical history. You know, I was fully a teenager when that was happening, um, when that first happened. So yeah, we do, we battle with being non-normative, with with being a subgroup. Anyone who isn't a white, biologically cis, Mm -hmm. you know, a cis white male guy is a subgroup in terms of what medicine understands about us. And I think there are some shifts, but yeah, it's extraordinary to think about. That's amazing. I read a book called Normal Sucks by a writer called Jonathan Mooney. And that is fascinating 
I found the idea of normal, what normal is in terms of height, weight, measurements, all of that. You know, those lines that you see in the doctor where they, they mm -hmm. put you on a normal. Those all date back to I, I think some, sometime in the 50s. And they were Harvard male undergraduates mm. that where all of that idea of where normality even comes from in the first place. So it really chimes with what you're saying about what is even normal. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know that. That's extraordinary. I was also just thinking of one thing that Kate said when she would have big follow-up appointments, she would bring a friend with her to the appointment, like the, the buddy system of when you get nervous, like if you bring a friend that is like good at asking questions that can advocate for you, because I, I know I get quite frightened when I go to the doctor. I'm a very nervous patient. So, you know, if there's something actually really going on with my health at some point in time, I think it would probably behoove me to bring a level-headed advocate with me is that a good thing for people to do or yeah I think that can be a brilliant thing to do especially you know you want someone to sort of be able to testify for you and to somebody maybe also who's been through who knows what you've been through right and can speak for you if it is difficult because the you know the encounter the medical encounter can be really difficult for so many people it can be I think truly traumatizing and I don't think there's enough attention paid to this about just how difficult that encounter in and of itself can be to talk about your body your feelings your sensations to somebody who you are already anticipating might be hostile might not believe you is it can be a really traumatizing situation to be in and I think like bringing someone that you really trust and like doesn't have to be a partner friend relative like someone that you know, can speak for you if you find it difficult or who's just there to testify to what happened in that room on that day mm -hmm. could be like a real source of comfort and like something that could be really empowering. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. And we're back. This has been so informative because it is, as we were saying before the break, it is a frightening thing. I mean, it's frightening even, let's say you are the perfect white male Harvard, you know, like I would still be terrified going in, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was raised just to believe trust authority. If that's what they say, that's what it is. And I hate going to appointments enough that I'm not going to pursue it further, like to the detriment of my health, probably. You know, my friend, I don't mean to just have keep having war stories, but this was a friend of mine who who's a mother and her son was 12 or 13 and had quite a bit of leg pain. And he went, she kept bringing him into the doctor and asking for an MRI and they wouldn't give it to her. And then kept like really begging for an MRI numerous times when he was in quite a bit of pain. And they were like, you know, it's probably just growing pains and you're going to have to deal with the fact that your baby boy is growing up and he's going to be in high school and like you need to deal with it. Get over yourself. And then one day at school, his freshman year, like I think it was like his first month of high school, he couldn't walk. And she begged, begged for an MRI, which they did not want to give her. And it turned out he had stage four bone cancer. Oh, it just breaks my heart. But you know, like she knew and she knew earlier. And I mean, I'm not saying it would have turned out differently, but like a mother knows and to be dismissed. And maybe if the dad had brought him down, I'm just saying like, it just breaks my heart for everybody that hasn't been listened to. It really does. I'm sorry to be, <laughs> I'm sorry to be like emotional about it, but it's just like, it's just heartbreaking. It's truly heartbreaking. And especially as you say, like mothers, mothers do know, like, you know, you have that instinct. And, you know, when I mean, my, my illness was diagnosed, because when I was pregnant, my with my second son, he had a heart condition, and that was slowing his heart rate down. And there was no, they couldn't figure out a reason why. And in the end, it turned out that it was me that my body was creating these antibodies that were attacking his heart. And luckily, you know, I was in the right place at the exact right time. And I got referred to an incredible fetal cardiac expert in London. And it just so happened that she, on that day, she was able to see on that scan what was happening. And then we had a treatment plan in place. If that hadn't 
presented on that day. Like it wouldn't have been discovered. My illness wouldn't have been diagnosed. And I think it was really just a matter. I mean, the care was fantastic, but it was a real accident of luck that I had like a sonographer who was really paid attention. I had a doctor who was like, no, we're going to get this referral because it could have been such a different situation. So it is truly heartbreaking that sometimes it just comes down to this accident of luck of who you've got in the room on that day. To give yourself permission, even though I know I was socialized to be polite, don't make a fuss, don't make waves, you know, go along to get along. But if in your heart of hearts, you feel that something is wrong, be the dog with the bone. Just have your own back. Bring in your toughest friend, (laughs) you know, and it's hard. I mean, it's hard because a lot of people can't afford numerous, you know, many, many people don't have health insurance and cannot afford numerous trips to the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a long time. And it was just, I was very lucky that I had a great doctor who was just as keen as I was to get to the bottom of it. But if I hadn't, it's like you say, it's just a complete fluke who you happen to get. And that was your second doctor, right? Yeah, yeah. The first one was, he was a very senior, he was a very senior doctor, very intimidating figure. And I was, I was, you know, oh, well, maybe he's right. And then luckily somebody else was willing to take up the cause. Thank God. Thank goodness. I, I do think that advocacy and opening up and talking about it, it's really helpful. Yeah, I just think the more we talk about it and the more people read your book, I think it's it's a huge, it's huge. I feel like I have a lot of learning to do still of where I hold myself back in various areas and which is what's fun about the podcast. You know, we're talking about health. We've been talking about money. We've been talking about, you know, standing up for yourself, like things that we don't I don't talk about that much. So this is this has been really wonderful for me. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think that we should have talked about? I think we we covered loads of range, didn't we? we were like from ancient Greek to <laughs> ancient Greece to me too. That's yeah. a, we covered a lot of ground. I'm always so pleased. I mean, infuriated, but also so pleased that this topic of the relationship between women and the medical establishment is really kind of tentacular and really reaches into other areas of the conversation about what it means to be a woman. Um, what it means to kind of, you know, stand in our truth and stand in our power as women and how, you know, that programming, we can begin to kind of deprogram from those messages and kind of really explore what it means to have internalized those messages. I mean, my mum was like a real hippie and she still told me like not to make a fuss because you don't want to seem like a fuss pot little girly girl. So there's that kind of messaging too. But I think that being empowered to speak and being empowered to tell our stories also needs to come with a cultural shift towards listening and taking the time to listen to women's stories and stories of marginalized people and stories of those who are oppressed. You know, we can advocate and hopefully others can listen. Anna, were you brought up to speak up? I think you're always very good at standing up for yourself. Did your family give messaging? I mean, I know it's slightly different for you and your brother. I know that there's... Yeah, I mean, I was always kind of told to be like a good... Persian girl, just like kind of like what your mom was describing, like quiet and polite and respectful. Because I feel that you're very you're a very strong woman who has her own back. Have you have you always been that way or has that been a journey for you? That's been a journey for me because I, I started to realize I was being overlooked because I was just being so quiet. The thing is, my mom, while she is very headstrong, she is like best of both worlds, like 
she's a very quiet like she has a thing where she says I don't I don't just talk to talk I talk to say something so like she's very quiet and polite and she doesn't say a lot but when she does you're like listening so like I at times have that but then I also my dad is very loud bolsterous just I'm you know just screaming about everything and so <laughs> I see that and I think like he really like my dad stands up for himself in a way where you're like you are the most obnoxious person <laughs> so I think I kind of got best of both worlds where I know not to talk because I just want to talk and like fill the silence but then at the same time like seeing my dad so aggressively advocate for himself at all times I always think I need to be more like that I just need to say something when it something is like important to me but I started out just very quiet and scared and shy because of just like culturally our world that I was raised in where like the boys stepped up and the girls were just you know we stay we we had to be polite and you know like basically just be quiet honestly and so I was lucky to have a mom who was so strong in that way but at the same time I have my dad always constantly you know speaking out so well, I always look up to you I respect you so much. Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn's book, Unwell Woman, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World, once again, is available now wherever books are sold. Go buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us. This was such an honor. I wish you all the success. Great luck with your book. And where can people find you? People can find me. I'm at Eleanor Cleghorn on Twitter. And I'm pretty online. So yeah, come and say hi. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a complete joy and a real honor. Thank you. Thank you you so much for joining us. And my name is Arda Marine, along with my friend, (laughs) Julie Ann Robinson. And the queen. Oh, I'm at Anna Hosnier. Our email is ladyroadpodcast at gmail. Julianne's Instagram is Julianne Robinson Director. I'm saying that for her because I know it stresses her out. (laughs) I'm Arda Marine, M-Y-R-I-N on all platforms. So follow us. We have photos up of all of our episodes and we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 
Mexico.com. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Iberostar Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.